Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. So daddy is one of those words in Cape Verdean Creole that doesn't have a direct English translation. Roughly, it means missing someone or something. But it's deeper than that. It's a longing that feels more like a whole, like a part of your soul is gone. There are many songs written about this, the most famous, of course, being by Cesaria Avora, the queen of Cape Verdean music. Anyone can have this feeling of sodad. But for those of us in the Cape Verdean diaspora, it takes on a very specific meaning. Because no matter where you live now or where you were born, all Cape Verdeans have this nostalgic feeling. It's a yearning to be in Cabo Verde. Or to be with the people who have left. Or with who you've left behind. I'm Cape Verdean, and on my dad's side, he has a huge family. But for simplicity's sake... There are two branches, the Graces and the Depinas. My great-grandfather, Manuel Grace, immigrated to America around the same time as Daddy Grace, which was the beginning of the 20th century. I never met him. He died long before I was born. But I did know my dad's mother, Lydia Grace Depina, and his father, Jonathan Depina Sr., who I called Papa. I adored him. He and my Nana often took care of me when my parents were working, and I spent hours with them, happily tagging along behind Papa when he fed his chickens or helping Nana plant perfect rows of beans, kale, and carrots. I still remember Papa saying, Tukinya, the most important thing in this country is to have your own land and to pass it on to your children. I was a curious child. And one of my favorite things to do with him was to take long walks and ask him questions about his life back in Cabo Verde. He came to the U.S. when he was six on a schooner named the Volante. I loved hearing about his childhood back in Cabo Verde, the way the mountains of Fontañas always sat shrouded in clouds, or the beauty of the flowers and the people. Listening to these stories made me feel transported, my own imagination filling in the gaps of what his life had been like. To me, Cabo Verde was a place of wonder, a place I felt so connected to, a place I could not wait to experience myself. But within all of that, what I most remember was a feeling of my papa's mixed emotions. Because within his stories about life on Brava, I heard a tinge of sadness in his voice. And when I'd asked my papa if he missed Cabo Verde, and if he wanted to go back, he'd look at me and say, for what? I'm Marcy DePina, and from iHeart Podcasts and Forza Media Group, this is Sweet Daddy Grace. Our children, we are indeed glad to be here at this hour. Aren't you glad?
Daddy Grace immigrated to the United States from Cabo Verde, just like my grandfather. It was a country that both then and now, not many Americans outside the diaspora know much about. But to get to know Bishop Grace, you have to know where he came from. The Cabo Verde Islands are located about 350 miles off the coast of Senegal in the Atlantic Ocean. In Portuguese, Cabo Verde means Green Cape, which is quite a bit of a misnomer as the country is not particularly green. The islands are situated in the crossroads of two of the driest trade winds in the world, so there is very little rain. And several of the islands are basically deserts. Cabo Verde is made up of 10 islands, nine of which are inhabited. And while they are proudly connected as one country, each is a little different. Each speaks its own dialect of Creole, for example. And the cultures are a little different too. The people of Santiago, the largest island, are known for the music of batuku, a form of drumming and dancing that is primarily done by women. San Vicente is known for its carnival. But it is also deeply influenced by the British, who used the island as a coal refueling station in the early 1800s. And Brava, where my family is from, is the smallest island, known for its hospitality, nationally revered poet Eugenio Tavares, as well as its waterfalls and flowers. We are most united, perhaps, by the fact that at its very essence, to be Cape Verdean means to have roots from around the globe. Because before Portuguese explorers landed there in the mid-15th century, the Cabo Verde Islands were actually uninhabited. And as was the case during this time period, the Portuguese government was interested in two things, producing sugar and enslaving Africans to do it. But the land was so dry, the sugar crops failed. And the Portuguese realized that their new colony was actually much more useful as a port in their slave trade, which was quickly expanding. Many Africans brought to Cabo Verde were sent on slave ships to the Americas, but many also stayed. Some were enslaved to work for Portuguese landholders, and others escaped into the mountains, where they formed their own communities, which still exist today. So Cape Verdean Creole culture developed as these populations, African, European, Middle Eastern, intermingled to become something very much its own. Economically, however, Cabo Verde was turning into a tough acquisition for the Portuguese. After around a century of colonization, the land could no longer grow much, like the indigo they had used to trade for enslaved Africans. And by the late 1800s, the slave trade itself had ended. So the colonizers abandoned the islands and left the people of Cabo Verde to fend for themselves. Many people suffered horribly. They were literally dying of starvation and dehydration. The islands experienced chronic droughts, where sometimes 50% of the population would die. Many Cape Verdeans were forced to leave trying to make whatever money they could to send back home to feed their families. Many never returned. The main way out was on whaling ships. The 1800s were the height of the whaling industry, and Cape Verdeans played a big part as crews on the American-owned boats. They were known for their courage, work ethic, and maritime skills. Remember Moby Dick? It was published in 1851, and one of the harpooners on board, Dago, is thought to be Cape Verdean. But eventually, the work dried up. When whaling went into decline in the United States, it was harder to get young Yankees to serve as crew on whaling vessels. That's my stepmom, Marilyn Halter, again scholar of Cape Verdean American history and professor emerita at Boston University. So when they would stop in the Cape Verde Islands by the late 19th century, they were eager to find people to man these ships. Cape Verdean men bought old whaling boats, 
repaired them and started what was called the packet trade. Now Cape Verdean owned and operated ships would crisscross the Atlantic, bringing supplies from the United States back to Cabo Verde and bringing immigrants to New Bedford, Massachusetts and Providence, Rhode Island. Because of this, the first voluntary African immigrants to America were Cape Verdeans. This ended up giving them an advantage when they arrived. They still had community. Really, unlike any immigrant group, white or black, they were the only population to actually have control over their means of passage to this country. And when you contrast that with the other African immigrants who came here involuntarily, the slave population who had absolutely no control over anything in their lives, there was a lot of support, cultural and community support. Part of that support meant access to work, though often the kind of jobs available were the ones no one else wanted. There was such a racial and ethnic hierarchy that the only jobs for them was at the lowest rung of the ladder. So the Irish got the best jobs and then the Portuguese and the French Canadians and then, you know, Cape Verdeans were at the bottom of the ladder. There was work at the stack textile mills on the cranberry bogs and in maritime related occupations such as longshoremen and cooks and other kinds of dock workers. Details are scarce about Daddy Grace's immigration story to the U.S. We know he had come over from the island of Brava and landed in New Bedford in 1904 on a ship called the Louisa. His parents and at least seven siblings were already there waiting for him. The New Bedford Evening Standard wrote about the Louisa's arrival. It mentioned one passenger who looked, quote, every inch a dude with his trousers carefully pressed and an immaculate shirt front. I'd like to hope that was our Marcelino. I get the feeling he always stood out. He first made his living in America like basically all Cape Verdean immigrants did, working various jobs. He picked cranberries in the bogs, a job he apparently hated so much he threw down his wheelbarrow and quit. He also sold patent medicines, ran a grocery store, and worked as a cook in a local restaurant and later on on the railways. My own great-grandfather, Manuel Grace, the one I never met, arrived in the United States around the same time as Daddy Grace. And in some ways, their stories were similar, including the fact that they were both from Brava and both named Grace. The way it was explained to me by Uncle Abel was that he found out that his father was being promiscuous. That's my cousin Jonathan again. From what Jonathan has been told, our great-grandfather, who everyone called Nola Locke, left Cabo Verde when he was just 17 years old. He had told his mother before he had left and gone to school, and I guess during the day she confronted him when he was coming home that his father was pitching rocks at him, telling him, don't come back here no more. One of the times that he was hit, he was hit in the head, and then he went down where there was a whaler stocking up, and that was his first time that he had left home. My Aunt Judy, Jonathan's mother, picks up the story from there. He had no money. He came on a whaling ship working, and his destination was the United States. However, he jumped ship in Bermuda and worked on a sugar plantation there to earn money, to continue to to travel, sailed around South America and went to Hawaii. And then he went to San Francisco. He was there during the 1906 Great Earthquake. After the earthquake, my great-grandfather got a job on the railroads and made his way east across the country. His final destination? A small seaside town outside New Bedford called Mattapoisa, where he had family nearby. Life there suited him. He got a job doing manual labor and soon saved enough money to buy a small pig farm and a house. He was around 40, old for a bachelor those days, 
and was ready to settle down. By then, he was not a young man, and I believe that he had an arranged marriage with a Cape Verdean woman from Brava. With just a horse and buggy, he started a small business collecting trash in the neighborhood, and he eventually won a contract with the town. But when I asked my aunt to describe Nola Locke for me, she mostly talked about his spirituality. He was very, very much into his religion. In our dining room, we had a large farmhouse kitchen, and we always ate there. I don't ever recall eating in the dining room. But what I do remember is that was where my grandfather had his Bible, and that he sat there and read the Bible. So food wasn't served there, but the Word of God was served there. My Aunt Judy's stories got me thinking about how similar Nola Locke and Daddy Grace's lives must have been in America. At least at first. They worked the same blue-collar jobs that all Cape Verdeans did. They went to the same shops, they both married Cape Verdean women, and started families. But were we related? I started asking other family members what they knew, or who I should talk to. One person told me that years before Daddy Grace founded the United House of Prayer, he would sometimes preach at the church that Nola Locke attended, the Portuguese Pentecostal Church on Cape Cod, pastored by Joseph de Grace, Daddy Grace's elder brother. And that in the early days, they enjoyed discussing the Bible together when Daddy Grace would visit Nola Locke's house. Nola Locke's house, the one he bought with the trash collection earnings, it yielded another clue. I was on Ancestry.com looking through some old census records from the 1920s and 30s. The house that Nola Locke owned, it was right next to a house owned by Caesar Grace, Daddy Grace's older brother. I had heard their families were close, that Caesar's daughter and Nola Locke's daughter, my Nana, called each other primas, cousins. This in itself didn't prove anything. It's customary for Cape Verdeans to call each other family, even if the relationship isn't blood. I still call my parents' friends Tio and Tia. But it did help explain what happened later when Daddy Grace asked Nola Locke's daughter, my Nana, to go out on the road with him as part of his church. That man showed up on the farm thinking he could talk to your grandmother. My father would have no part of it. And... Then he would go into speaking Creole where he would say, showing him the axe and saying, you know, this is an axe, I'll sharpen it on your head. Daddy Grace would have been in his mid-40s. And here he was asking Nola Locke's teenage daughter to leave home and join his church and travel with him unaccompanied without even asking permission from her father. Daddy Grace had to have known that this was not appropriate behavior and something Nola Locke would not have liked. No wonder Nola Locke was so enraged, he threatened Daddy Grace with an axe. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Why Nola Locke and Daddy Grace's lives diverged? Why are families diverged? My great-grandfather... He was a conservative man. After having spent years disconnected from his own family, traveling around the globe, working and searching for a home, he was happy to stay in Massachusetts, working his farm, running his businesses, raising his children, and living a stable, if modest, life. In contrast, Daddy Grace was always looking outward, far from New Bedford. He didn't seem interested in settling into the role of a family man. He had a burning desire to spread the gospel far and wide. In 1912, after just a few years of marriage, he left his wife and two young children, hit the road and traveled the country and the world, refining his evangelical message. The decisions he made, his life, must have seemed truly wild to my great-grandfather. Daddy Grace had his own style, and it wasn't traditional. It was flamboyant. His hair was long, he wore colorful clothes, and he wasn't afraid to show off his success. I'm sure that got people talking, and that he quickly realized that he was outgrowing New Bedford. I can relate. 
Growing up in New Bedford, I always felt different. Yeah, I hung out on the beach and participated in all the traditional Cape Verdean activities, but I would also skip school and take the bus to New York City for the day to shop and discover the latest music and fashions. By the time I got to high school, I knew that if I wanted to do anything creative, I'd need to leave. I needed to explore outside of the fishbowl of the Cape Verdean American community. Like Daddy Grace, I needed to find my place in the world. Among the many pieces of Daddy Grace material I've collected is a copy of his 1914 Declaration of Intention to Become an American Citizen. I've studied it, trying to understand more about this man from the few details listed. Like, for example, how at the time he was employed as a cook, that he renounced any allegiance to the Republic of Portugal, that he was 31, 5 foot 8, and 166 pounds, that his skin color was black, but that he had a light complexion. Knowing how complicated identity can be for Cape Verdeans in America, this last part was especially interesting to me. How Daddy Grace viewed himself was a big source of controversy around him at the time, something both black and white Americans had trouble wrapping their heads around. In 1952, Daddy Grace was featured in a piece in Ebony Magazine. He told the writer, I am not a Negro. I am white by race. But he also tells the same reporter, I am a colorless bishop. Sometimes I'm black, sometimes I'm white. I preach to all races. I wonder what Ebony readers who were predominantly black would have made of this statement. Did Daddy Grace think that by claiming to be white, that would take him further? Was he a race denier? Or did he just understand the power of a little controversy? I can understand why people might have thought that when they heard that quote. There were Cape Verdeans who, thanks to colonialism, were brainwashed to believe that they were Portuguese. And of course, many of us do have Portuguese blood. But I don't think that's what Daddy Grace meant. Daddy Grace did not consider himself a Black American. He considered himself Cape Verdean. Because Cabo Verde was still a colony of Portugal, Daddy Grace came to America on a Portuguese passport. But he didn't look like how Americans thought a Portuguese man looked. He didn't look white. He didn't look European. He had curly hair, light brown skin, and he was always dressed to the nines with a three-piece suit, a 10-gallon hat, and his jewels. He also spoke with an accent, which further confused how others perceived him. And because of that, I think he was misunderstood by contemporary Americans, whose own views of race didn't allow much room for nuance. Throughout his time in America, Daddy Grace's racial categorization changed based on whoever was filling out the paperwork. Immigration listed him as Black African from Portugal on his 1904 arrival. On the 1910 census, he was listed as mulatto. But his 1918 draft card says Negro. And his 1932 marriage license lists him as Caucasian. No wonder Daddy Grace said he was colorless. He saw right through the absurdity of the system and perhaps saw the opportunity to define himself on his own terms. This seemingly arbitrary racial categorization imposed by other people was actually quite common. And so, wrestling with identity and race was something that he and all Cape Verdean immigrants were very familiar with. These immigrants were escaping a system of white supremacy and colonialism, only to arrive in America and see how Black Americans were being violently oppressed through racist Jim Crow laws and the horrific terror of lynching. And the people doing the lynching, they didn't care about where you were born or how you identified. In August of 1921, it was reported that a mob threatened to lynch three, quote, Cape Verde Island Negroes on Cape Cod who had been charged with a criminal assault on a white woman. This was the world they needed to figure out how to position themselves in to survive and to thrive. 
they were arriving at the height of racial miscegenation and de facto segregation in this country. That's Marilyn again. Nobody had any interest in recognizing them as Cape Verdeans as a separate identity. All they saw was black or white. And so they were treated with the same level of discrimination, prejudice, and hostility as African-Americans or other people of color in this country. Other Americans didn't understand Cape Verdeans and our rich, multi-ethnic identities. What island you were from, what type of Creole you spoke, what's your family name? That was what was discussed, not just your skin color. It was so uncomfortable, even oppressive, for Cape Verdeans to arrive here and just being categorized by other people in ways that weren't even recognizable to themselves, let alone, you know, to the rest of society. And it's a kind of erasure of who you are. This still feels true to me. A third-generation Cape Verdean American. Where do you actually fit in? Daddy Grace, in his interview in Ebony Magazine, said, I am a colorless man. I am a colorless bishop. And to me, that's like, just so Cape Verdean, you know? He's enhancing his black side and his white side, and he's bringing it all together. I think that Cape Verdeans were actually pioneers of how to navigate the waters of American pluralism. They've challenged these notions of race, color, ethnicity, and identity well before anyone else, any other population in this country that I know of. So basically the intentionality behind why folks would choose to call themselves Cape Verdean, but then not claiming Black as a race or saying that they're Portuguese. Why is that? Is it because of the desire to to have proximity to whiteness or um, wanting to hold on to white supremacist ideals? So I always talk about intentionality as it relates to identity of our people. Dr. Terza Lima Neves is a professor of political science at Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina. And because she's also a Cape Verdean immigrant herself, she can give context to the struggle Cape Verdeans face around identity in America. I think that it's an intergenerational conversation, controversy. Well, our ancestors who arrived here in the late 1800s, um, early 1900s and beyond, where segregation, racism was just, you know, the dominant conversation, of course you're going to try to separate yourself from the Black American community because of this notion. You see how Black Americans are being treated and you're trying to distance yourself from that. But then, you know, you're not white, and the other white groups don't see you as being white, not quite Black American by choice and by force, but you're not Portuguese or white. So then you stick to what you know and you begin to rely on each other. And so that's not to say it's wrong or right. It's just what happened. Times have changed since Daddy Grace and other elders came to the United States. And Terza experienced the transformation of her own identity within the racial construct of America. She says much of this was thanks to the professors and peers she was surrounded by at Clark Atlanta University. I'm very specific about saying that I'm a Black African woman. That's how I see myself. And that is all due to the socialization and the education that I received. Most of the professors were Black but there were a very diverse group of Black people from the United States and also from many different places in the diaspora and the continent of Africa as well. All through those years, I was able to be grounded in what I wanted my identity to look like. I was born here in the United States, and I've always identified as a Black woman. But I also see myself very much as a Cape Verdean woman. By the time we got to my generation, Cape Verdean Americans 
had experienced a century of oppression in the United States and had been fighting alongside Black and African diaspora Americans for a dismantling of structural racism. And I grew up in the hip-hop generation, where principles like pan-Africanism and knowledge of self led me to discover my ancestral roots, unravel the heinous system of the Afro-Atlantic slave trade, and explore the deep connection of those entangled in it. But identity is complicated. As soon as you define what it means to you, society and people in general, impose their perception of you onto you. So there's this kind of internal and external negotiation of determining exactly who you are. It's a never-ending cycle that starts with the question, what are you? Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. I took my first trip to Cabo Verde in 2005, and since then, I've been back many times. Spending time there, seeing the things my papa talked about in person, understanding a bit deeper how hard it must have been for my ancestors to leave their home and try to have a better life. All of that has helped me to figure out who I am in a way I never could in the United States. Cabo Verde feels like home to me. But I was born and raised in America. So when I'm in Cabo Verde, my style, my accent, and many of the ways in which I operate make me stand out. So that question, what are you? I can't escape it in Cabo Verde either. Cape Verdeans in Cabo Verde see me as their American cousin. They see me as someone who is not native to the islands. They call me things like Portuguesa or laugh at me when I spoke Creole because it gets mixed up with Portuguese, which I also speak. Or they would even call me white girl, Branquinha, because I am light-skinned. But here's the thing. Cape Verdeans born in Cabo Verde may not have these same issues in the islands. But just like Daddy Grace, as soon as they leave, their own identities are also questioned. So I am Cape Verdean. I was raised here in Praia, Cabo Verde. My family, everyone is Cape Verdean. That's Simone Spencer. She's an artist and educator. I talked with her in Praia when I was there last. Talking with Simone helped me unpack some of the feelings that I had about identity, race, and perception. When you are here in Cabo Verde, you identify yourself as Cape Verdean not as black or white. You only feel the need to identify as either black or white once you move out. I went to study in China, and that's when the identity thing came to me. Cape Verde is such a small country in (laughs) the whole world that when you go abroad, people don't even know about the country. So just being Cape Verdean was not enough. 
I had very, very, very short hair. And because my eyes are a bit slanted, people would think I'm a Chinese from the South. And my name is Simone Spencer. It's like an Irish surname. And I'm like, definitely not Irish. <laughs> I have very curly hair and my skin is not white at all. Why you have an Irish surname? <laughs> colonialism by the way it's colonialism so then it's where the real searching for an identity came i can relate to this living in the cape verdean bubble of new bedford no one ever thought that i was anything but cape verdean i mean i went to school with a gang of cousins we all know each other's families and we all went to the same cape verdean clubs but after i left home I got a lot of confused expressions about my last name, Tapina, and the way I looked. In New York City, everyone spoke to me in Spanish and assumed I was Puerto Rican or Dominican. I got that question again, what are you? Anyone who's ever been asked this before knows how aggravating it can be. Especially because in my case, a lot of people have never even heard of Cabo Verde. But there's also something powerful and not being easily defined. Simone feels this too. It's something you can't describe. <laughs> it's complicated. It's like being the perfect spy. Yeah, because you are so ambiguous. It's being everything and nothing because you come from everywhere, but it's nothing because on the world stage, almost nobody ever heard of you. <laughs> During one of my most recent trips to Cabo Verde, I tried to track down my ancestral records and Daddy Grace's too. Maybe this would help me understand more about where we both came from and either confirm or deny that there is a blood relation. I visited the National Archives in the capital city, Praia, certain they could help. But once I actually got inside, I ran into one bureaucratic roadblock after another, trying to access any records. They took my email address, but I'm still waiting for information. I was also hoping to finally make it to Brava, the island where my ancestors and Daddy Grace are from. I wanted to see the place where my family called home. And I wanted to visit the Catholic Church, which is known for keeping reliable baptism records. I thought that would definitely help me to confirm my family's history. But getting to Brava is difficult, really difficult. It's the smallest of the populated islands with only around 5,000 people. There is no airport, you have to take a boat. And the boats for one reason or another are often canceled. This happens a lot. The same thing happened to me the last three times I tried to make the journey. So I'm trying to figure out options, standing at the travel agency in a room full of people all clamoring and trying to get to Brava. And my friend says to me, what are you doing? You're an American girl. You have an American passport. Use it. You can use that passport to get you first in line. And that just shook me. Because here I am with people who've been waiting to get home for days, some for weeks. This one is sick. This one's waiting to bring money home. This one's bringing food. These are people with real struggles, real issues. And I'm dealing with first world problems. The average Cape Verdean salary is around $150 a month, making it economically impossible for people to survive without remittances from relatives that are overseas. And a hundred plus years after my ancestors fled, it's still easier for a Cape Verdean to travel abroad than to find reliable and safe inter-island transit to Brava. Not until that moment did I ever think of myself as privileged. I grew up poor, on welfare, eating government cheese and powdered milk. My mother worked nights. I was a latchkey kid. But my mother didn't have to get on a flight or a boat to come home or immigrate to find work. In Praia, not only did I feel the sting of privilege, but I also felt survivor's guilt. 
because my ancestors sacrificed so much, I had opportunities and access to resources that most people in Cabo Verde can only dream of. I never did get to Brava. I felt like a failure. Like I let my ancestors down, but also my team back in New York. I had traveled across the Atlantic and had failed to find any new information on not only my family, but Daddy Grace. I was no closer to proving or disproving my relation to him. After I got back to the States, I couldn't stop thinking about my trip and everything that it had brought up. I was searching for answers, but came back with more questions. I still didn't have the origin story, my origin story, or Daddy Grace's. I sat down with my friend, Daryl Stewart, who's also a producer on this show, to help me unpack some of the deep feelings that came up for me about race, identity, and how people's roots and stories get lost over the generations. So I'm Black American. I identify as Black American. And unfortunately for me, we can only trace our ancestry back. But so far, we know that our ancestors were from the Geechee Island area, that they were slaves brought in off of the coast of the Carolinas. But that's pretty much all we know. Can you talk a little bit about connecting to your ancestry? How has that shaped how you see the world today? Living in a place like New Bedford where most of the Black people are Cape Verdean, I didn't think about it as much when I lived there because, you know, I was among everybody's pretty much the same. It wasn't until I moved out of the area that I started to have more questions about my identity or at the very least have questions about how other people perceived me because when I was growing up there were never any questions nobody ever was like oh are you mixed so yes being Cape Verdean I quickly realized was a big part of my identity right and that is something that's different from being black American and you're having what you can trace of your ancestral roots here but Upon a further investigation of what it means to be Cape Verdean, you know, you quickly realize that I can only go back so far to trace my family lineage. Like, yes, we come from a place that is in Africa and has its own cultural identity, its own language, but Cape Verdeans wouldn't even exist if it wasn't from the slave trade. So we cannot trace our ancestral roots either, do you think that Sweet Daddy Grace struggled with his identity? What do you think about that? I do think that Daddy Grace was an outcast within the Cape Verdean community. Why? I think he was rejected because I think Cape Verdeans felt he was too audacious, not humble, just ostentatious with the display of his money. I think also... Some of his ways in which he operated, people were questioned, you know, really questioned, like the fact that he was surrounded by a lot of attendants. He didn't give conservative Cape Verdean man. He gave flamboyant, unapologetic, I'm going to be me and you are going to recognize that I am a very wealthy man and I'm not going to hide it. I think that he had to have struggled with that. I think that even if outwardly he might never have said like, oh, I feel rejected by the Cape Verdean community. And it wasn't just the Cape Verdean community. He was rejected by the black community too. And he was obviously rejected by the white community. So I think he had to have had an unshakable belief in himself. He really felt that I'm here to spread God's word. This is my mission. He even says in some of his teachings that he was just being persecuted the same way Jesus was. And you know what? Shout out to my mother. She used to say that too. She used to say, I don't know why you kids are so concerned about what other people think because they talked about Jesus. So guess what? People are going to talk about you too. You got to move into your purpose. That's exactly what Daddy Grace said. There is another side to this, right? Where people are like, I'm successful. I made it. My bills are paid. My life is wonderful. 
you know, fuck everybody who who doesn't like me or who didn't support me, etc. This is my time to shine. But I think it gets complicated for us, right? People of color, so much of our identity is steeped in family and community, right? And we do, many of us, in some ways, we don't feel fulfilled until we have the cosign, right? Of family, of community, of etc., etc., etc. So this is my final question for you. What does your Cape Verdean heritage mean to you? That's a serious question, Daryl. So serious a question that I couldn't give Daryl a concise answer. But I kept coming back to those days spent with my grandparents, learning about the ways of the old country, tending to the garden and the animals, sitting around the table with my extended family as they laughed, playing cards for pennies, and telling stories. I thought about the feeling of Sodadi and how Cape Verdeans in the diaspora are always longing for home and how those in Cabo Verde are always yearning to be reunited with their loved ones spread across the globe. I also kept coming back to what Simone had said about being a spy. Cape Verdeans have a unique way of blending in. Oftentimes, unless someone comes out and says it, you won't even know that their roots are in Cabo Verde. People like actors Michael Beach and Anika Nani Rose, or Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, or jazz musicians Horace Silver and Paul Gonzalez, the disco group The Tavars, and rapper Koi Luray. Over the generations, our identity merges with Black Americans, although we never forget our Cape Verdean heritage. And then, of course, I thought about Daddy Grace. Daddy Grace was a citizen of the world. He didn't see himself in the same racial construct that we see ourselves here in America. Plus, as a man of God, he knew race didn't mean a thing when it comes to being saved. Right before his death, Daddy Grace recorded a live sermon. There's a section I especially like where he gives us clues about how he saw himself. I'm on my way, however, and I am there now. I'm everywhere. You know where I am now? I'm everywhere right now. Don't you say God is everywhere? I'm everywhere. All you got to do, think of me, love me, ready to go with me, where I am, you there. And the people, well, they were ready to go with him. That's next time. Sweet Daddy Grace is a production of iHeart Podcasts and Forza Media Group. This show is hosted by me, Marcy DePina. It's written and produced by Marissa Brown and me. Our story editors are Daryl Stewart, Duncan Riedel, and Zarin Burnett. Editing, sound design, and theme music by Jonathan Washington. Original music by Enrique Silva of Acacia Mayor. Show cover art by Viviana Salgado of Studio Creative Group. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Our executive producers are Marcy DePina and Jason English. Special thanks to Will Pearson, Nikki Itori, Ali Perry, Tamika Campbell, and Lulu Phillip of iHeartMedia, and all of my family members who talked to me for this show. My ancestors, the United House of Prayer for All People, and the countless number of people who shared their memories of Sweet Daddy Grace with me. Thanks also to Dr. Marie Dahlem and Dr. Danielle Boone-Sigler, whose academic work on Sweet Daddy Grace has been incredibly helpful. And finally, I want to thank Bishop Grace himself 
for choosing me to tell his story. For more information on Bishop Charles M. Grace, check out the website Sweet Daddy Grace and follow me at Marcy DePina on all social platforms. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reu hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.